City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, now in their 30th year. These seminars give you the opportunity to learn from the professionals as they share their experiences in working in the theatre. Today's seminar is with a panel of playwrights, directors, and choreographers, and these are the artists who ride the creative heart of the theatre, and it's their work that we will learn about while we discover how the magic of the theater is created. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing, and I would now like to introduce our moderator for the seminar, Ted Chapin, President of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization and Secretary of the Wing's Board of Directors, Ted Chapin. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Uh, we, we have a distinguished panel. Uh, if, if, if my count is right, I, I count among the talents we have on this panel are actors, directors, choreographers, librettists, lyricists, composers, record producers. Have I left any out? It's a distinguished group. Let me introduce them to you, starting at my far right. Martin Charnin. Next to him, Michael Kunz. Next to him, Larry Sakharo. To my left, Marion McClinton. Next to him, Graziella Danielle. And next to her, Rupert Holmes. So thank you all for, for, for being here. Since this is sort of a multitasking panel, and so the, 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 the subjects that we will cover will, I'm sure, be, be multitasking, I thought I'd ask Marion first, since you're the first one who showed up today. Thank you. <laughs> um, you're, you are now a director, but you also have been an actor. Did you start out as an actor? Is that where you began? Uh, yes, I started out um, as an actor because what I wanted to do was become the um, Marlon Brando <laughs> of my generation. <laughs> uh, that's basically how I got into it. Uh, as a kid, I watched On the Waterfront and The Streetcar and Desire and The Wild One all in one weekend. And you all know, started running around the house with my T-shirt torn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mother didn't take too kindly to that. <laughs> but it uh, was the first time I saw... Uh, an actor who was different from film to film. You know, usually the actors I saw, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Cagney, great actors, but they were all pretty similar mm -hmm. from role to role. But, you know, watching this guy go from Stanley Kowalski to Terry Malloy uh, to Johnny the, Ro the Motorcycle King, uh, I just wanted to do what he did. did. Did you ever play any of his parts on stage? Um... No, I haven't, uh, or have directed anything that he has done before, but, uh... You'll get there. It's <laughs> 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 getting a little late for me to, to, to play some of those parts now. <laughs> but it was basically, um, the excitement of it. I mean, I was asthmatic as a kid, so I watched a lot. Mm -hmm. I watched a lot of, uh, movies. There was this 
wonderful program that uh, PBS used to have in the 60s where every Wednesday uh, evening you could watch a foreign classic movie. So I was watching Buñuel, Truffaut, Godard, all these as a little kid. So that's why I'm warped. <laughs> no. in, in, in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. But um, when I was in asthma attacks, it was like the one thing you can't breathe, you're, you're, you're petrified. Watching The Wild was the first one I watched. I was in an asthma attack when I watched it. By the end of it, I was out of it. So there had to be something about this thing. Right, the curative. You know, mm. that took me out of my own reality, which was a pretty harsh one, mm. and just brought me into another place. And so I wanted to do that. I, I don't want to betray confidence here, but I know for that Martin, for someone who, who was known as a, a, a lyricist and a creator of, of Annie, the fact that you were in the original cast of West Side Story. Yes. yes? So you started yes. as an you actor. You betrayed me. I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, start, I started out in, the, in, in life as a painter, actually. And I went to Cooper Union in New York City, and on the weekend that I graduated, um, Jerry Robbins had put an ad in the paper that he was looking for authentic juvenile delinquents, <laughs> still, <laughs> um, for, <laughs> for his, his forthcoming production of Gangway, which is what Westside was called at one time. As a matter of fact, on the back of the sets, when we were in Washington, the, the sets which were painted by the, the scenic artists. It says Gangway. Never, they never <laughs> changed it to, to Westside. Uh, and I went down to an open call at the Broadway Theater, uh, having had no experience whatsoever. But I put my hair in sort of a duck's ass, and I wore the, <laughs> the tightest jeans I could, and I, a pack of Luckies, which I smoked, and I rolled them up <laughs> in my, in my yeah. T-shirt. And there were 2,000 people there, and... and um, for some bizarre reason, which to this day I, I, I really do not know why this happened. 2,000 became 200, became 50, became 20, and at 10 o'clock at night there were four of us left, and I was one of them, having been put through it all by Robbins and Bernstein and, and Arthur Lawrence and Steve a little bit. But at the end of the day, Carl Fisher, who was the general manager of... Uh, of uh, the West Side said, can you come to work tomorrow morning and um, you'll get paid $260 a week. Wow. Which was a, a lot of money in 1957. And the show had been in rehearsal for a long, long period of time and I went into it and played it. D did you have I mean, Jerome Robbins is known for his strenuous choreographic ab uh, abilities. Were you did you audition? What did you do? I auditioned. I sort. I, I sang very loudly. I was. I was very <laughs> articulate, and I could also sing very fast. And end my D's and T's, which was something that I discovered was very important to Sondheim and and, and to Lenny, uh, because I sang Officer Krupke, and I ended up singing Officer Krupke. But that from Jerry's standpoint, one of the things that I could do that not a lot of people could do was this. <laughs> but I could do it. But I could do it without without that, which is what a lot of jets early on had to do. They had to they had to lift their fingers. But did you did you stay as a performer, or did you I stay move? No, I I mean, I, first of all, my father was an opera singer. He was in the Met, um, and. 
he did not like the musical theater at all. As a matter of fact, he and Ezio Pinza were very close, and when Pinza deserted the Met to do South Pacific, my father never spoke to him again. And so it was very difficult for me to tell him that I was leaving painting to become a performer, uh, and particularly a performer in the musical theater. But what I did say to him was, look, um, everybody in the event is Jewish. <laughs> so that sort of made it all right. <laughs> and of course, the pièce de résistance was Lenny. I mean, Lenny was the wonderkind right. crossing, living in both worlds at the same time. I, I did it for a thousand performances, both here in, in New York and on the road, but realized that I couldn't continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, which is basically a responsibility when indeed you were in a show. You've got to keep it the same and you've got to do it the same. So I, I decided to, to, to leave as the acting profession. I never did anything else, and I began to write. Grazie, when you were in sh long-running shows, did, did you stay to the bitter end, or did you want to get out after a thousand performances? No, I was actually very lucky, because I was in most of my running shows were with Michael Bennett, and he would always be preparing another show in the same year. So I would stay like, you know, maximum six months, and he would say, come on over. I have the other one to come. So I was really lucky. No, I think that the longest one I stayed in was Chicago. And, be and because I had a responsibility, I was uh, the dance captain. But I, I wasn't too happy about just staying performing. Now, I, you know, I discovered late in my life that, I was, that my mind was not so much in performing. It was about something else. Did R Rupert, did, did you have performing? Uh, yeah, I, I actually I was in the record business. I was a recording artist. I, um, I actually had the last number one record of the 1970s and the first of the 1980s, so I can say I was at the top of the charts for two decades without interruption. <laughs> 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 it was, Good timing. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's infamous. The songs followed me everywhere. It was called Escape, but it's known as the Pina Colada song. <laughs> and I wrote it and sang it. It was in uh, movies. And I had a tour. I had to, uh, and I did the road for about three years. And they would say to me, you're booked um, from Monday to Sunday in Detroit, and then you're booked from Monday to Sunday in Tokyo, and then you're booked from... I'd say, it's not Monday to Sunday. That's like, you're talking about 40 days without a break. And so I did that for, um, for a while, and um, found that I couldn't sing certain lines without pointing this way. I was so locked in my blocking and all like that. So that wasn't, uh, that wasn't much fun. I didn't enjoy it at all. I was glad to bail out of that. Did you? Do you have acting? I, I acted in college briefly and was so terrible at it, I, I knew <laughs> that um, it was not for me. But I just discovered something quite interesting listening to Martin. Um, I was an authentic juvenile delinquent <laughs> in Brooklyn <laughs> when West Side Story was running, and my entire gang would go to the, the theater and second act the play constantly. <laughs> I saw the second act about 50 times, and now I know you're the <laughs> <laughs> with Officer Krupke. How do you mean second act? Um, you would walk it in the intermission so you wouldn't have to pay for a ticket. Uh, no, not, <laughs> not that this is ever done. <laughs> no. It went out in the 60s. It went out when the TKTS <laughs> started. <laughs> but that was the reason I got involved in the theater was because as a kid from Brooklyn, I saw, oh, you could put your life on stage. This is Indeed. fantastic. That's what I want to do.
and that that motivated me to get involved. So thank Good you. Good motivation. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, did, did you start in the in the record business? I know you you have a multi-faceted yeah, well, career. Yes, I, I started out as a songwriter, and in a way, uh, I ended up in theater because uh, all these talents, you know. Uh, you all have, I hadn't, <laughs> and uh, you always admire most what you don't have. So I really uh, kneel down before uh, actors, dancers, singers, and I just wanted to be close to these people. This is why I started to write for the theater. And then you also you translated a, gr a, a great number of American musicals into German, did That's you not? That's true. Yes, uh, I adapted basically, you know most of the shows uh, that were shown or are being shown in, your, in, in Germany, uh, Switzerland, Austria, like Phantom of the Opera, Evita, A Chorus Line, um, Kiss of a Spider Woman, mm -hmm. uh, Mamma Mia, K Lion King, whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, y yeah, but it was n not just adapting the shows. Uh, that gave me a chance to learn a lot about how these shows are structured. So The Dance of the Vampires, which is your show in previews now, um, was your idea? Well, uh, it wasn't really my idea to do this. Uh, the idea came from the production company in Vienna who did uh, my first show, Elizabeth, uh, which was very successful and still is very successful. And uh, this was uh, in 1995. And they had this, they were approached by a producer who had rights in the film uh, Roman Polanski did, uh, with, which is called here the Fearless Vam Vampire Killers. Yeah. And uh, I, kn I knew that film and I liked that film. And I thought, yes, I'm interested to do that, but, but you cannot just do it uh, as a stage show because it's a film, it's a spoof on vampire films, you know. So it makes a lot of fun of uh, the cliches in, the, in these vampire films. And uh, well, I, I, I <coughs> went to Paris and met uh, Roman Polanski and I was surprised. He said, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about musical theater. Uh, you do whatever you think uh, it's right, and you come back to me, of course, and, and uh, tell me what you want to do, and uh, and I decide if I want to do it. Uh, and you do, and you do so all the work. Yes, actually, yeah, actually, yes. But but uh, he was uh, pleased with the concept, and finally took over the direction in uh, the original production in Europe. But he's not here yet. I mean, he can't come. Can he, he can't mm -hmm. come to this country yet. I he's think. not allowed in. That's I right. Know. I don't think so. Yeah, no. he will not. You know. <laughs> Well, but anyway, he, I think he, was not, he, he wouldn't have been interested to do it here. But it, it brings up an, an interesting question. A as playwrights, directors, choreographers, you have more control over your fate in the theater than, than most people. What, what projects have you have, have started with one of you, initiated, and you thought you had a, a passion for something and you just decided to drive it through? Well, I mean, it took me seven years to get Annie on. Uh, a passion to the extent that I saw it. I saw a compilation of the comic strip stories um, and asked my attorney to get the rights, which he did. And for seven years, I kept, we wrote the show, Charles Strauss and Tom Meehan and I wrote the show in um, about a year and a half. And then it took seven years to simply try and get somebody to, uh, to agree to do it and to see it the way that we, that, that we saw it. Because what we wanted to do was we wanted to put 
in effect, put pupils in those white eyes and make her a real flesh and blood kind of character. And everybody who, who heard it at the beginning immediately believed that it was going to be Nancy Walker and Burt Lahr doing a, a satire, doing a camp, because comic strips had not been successful, uh, really successful at all up until, uh, up until Andy. I mean, there had been Superman and there had been, what, Little Abner. Um, and a couple of others. But I guess I liked Annie mostly because I sort of thought Harold Gray was an American Dickens, the guy who created the strip. And I remember there being a lot of dialogue in those little balloons in the boxes. So I knew we had a lot of material to write. And Annie was different, difficult to get on, but you had to just stick with it. I mean, I literally spent every penny that I had on maintaining the rights and doing auditions and finally we were able to get it to the Goodspeed Opera House where Michael Price produced it and then Lou Allen and Mike Nichols came and saw it on the last weekend and decided that they would become producers and took the option and ran with it. Did you pull any of the words from the, from the actual balloons in the comic strip and make them into... Aside from, aside from the names of the characters, nothing came from... The sun will come up tomorrow, wasn't it? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Daddy Warlocks never, never, never said that. <laughs> Nor did Andy. Nobody, nobody said that. Rupert was the... Uh, uh, we, have, we have an old uh, collaboration here because Graziella and Rupert worked on the mystery of Edwin Drood. Was, was that your idea? Did you come up with that idea? It was a wonderful well, evening. Well, um, I was... I, it, it's really because I'm afraid of flying. And uh, <laughs> I used to take the train from L.A. to New York, which is uh, hardly different from flying. It's only four days. <laughs> and uh, and uh, before I, and, and in those days, on the Super Chief, we changed in Chicago for the Broadway Limited. And um, I always had to take along about five books because there's nothing to do on the train. I mean, there were no in-flight movies or things like that. And I had always uh, been fascinated by this book that we had on our bookshelves. We had that mandatory set of Dickens that everyone who had a nice home had to have. And the last book in the series was The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and I loved mysteries. My father said to me when I was about 12, he said, well, you don't want to read that. It's not really a mystery like mystery stories. And he said, anyway, Dickens never finished it. And I, um, that interested me, and I took the book and opened it up and looked at the last page to see where he had stopped. <laughs> and they had actually put in a fragment that had been found after his death of another part of the story, never completed. So it broke off in mid-sentence. And so I read it and there got this ominous dash and I, I pictured Dickens going like this <coughs> and falling over. <laughs> and it haunted me for years. So when I was taking this train trip, I said, there's the, I saw a paperback and said, that's, that, that's Mystery of Edwin Drood. I gotta read that. And if I'm on a train, I really will. Well, I got through it. D Dickens died exactly halfway through writing it. He planned it to be in 12 installments and he wrote six and died the day he finished the sixth installment, leaving no notes whatsoever as to how the story was going to end. Now I'm on a train wondering where this story was going and absolutely no way to do any research. Now I can't go to a library and look up what scholars thought about where the story was going to go and it drove me mad. So from Chicago to New York, um, I started to think about it and thought, you know, actually, it would be an interesting musical because the protagonist is a crazed choir master. He's madly in love with his uh, music student, the fair Rosa Bud. There's this guy named Dirtles who sings these songs. I thought it could be a musical. And when I got home, I started to try and write it. And it was really somber, very dark, because the book is dark. And, um, and I set it aside. And just thought about it for about eight years. 
And finally, uh, I was actually working at Rodney Dangerfield's club in the days when Rodney Dangerfield could actually be there. And I always wanted to be in theater, and I, I used to produce rock bands in London uh, simply so I could catch the West End season. I would schedule their recording around the matinee schedule. And um, I was working there, and Joe Papp had been sort of following my albums because Craig Zayden had been playing them for him. Craig was working there at that time. And um, he and his wife, Gail Merrifield, sent me a note saying, you're doing theater within your act. Did you ever think of doing something larger? And I went to them and basically laid out the idea of doing the mystery of Edwin Drew. And they said, well, how would you finish it if Dickens didn't finish it? I said, well, I, I thought it could be constructed in a way that the audience could vote on the ending, and it would be different every night. <laughs> Uh, which is what's wonderful about theater anyway, because theater is different every night. But this would be a way to really highlight that and build it into something as formal as a musical. And Joe looked very dubious about it, but said, I'm interested. And I thought, how many people would be willing to kill their next of kin to have Joe Papp saying, I'm interested, I'd like to hear what you come up with. So then I merely took off three years of my life and <laughs> wrote it. And then I got very lucky. I, I performed the whole thing for him <coughs> in his office, and I was going to demand a workshop. And he said, well, uh, good. Okay, so we'll do it in Central Park at the Delacorte, and then if it goes well, maybe we'll go on to Broadway with it. And I still held out for that workshop. I, I <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, and then I got very lucky because Wilfred Leach and Grazio Danielle came in and sort of took my clumsy efforts and shaped it into something that uh, went to Broadway. But you had written book, music, and lyrics. And right? I did the orchestrations, too. You did the orchestrations. Which, 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 uh, which I would never do again. I didn't know that you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Well, actually, the union doesn't allow you to do it. Although Michael Starobin actually wrote the ballet, that, uh, yeah, the Opium Den Ballet yeah. for Graziella. But um, I had always arranged all my own work. I'd done albums with Streisand and my own stuff. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me that you didn't orchestrate your own compositions. Have you found that uh, doing vampire in, in this country that that there that y there are more things that you would have wanted to do that other people are doing, or are you happy with the collaborative team? No, I mean I'm in a different position here because I'm learning here because uh, of course uh, this is a total different world from uh, what I'm used. To. Of course, the theatre people are the same uh, uh, everywhere, but. Uh, I uh, keep hearing, you know, it's different here on Broadway. It's different. Uh, uh, our audience is different. I still doubt it a little bit, but uh, I, I'm willing to learn. And I'm willing to listen, of course. But uh, um, I would like to say something, uh, uh, because we have uh, these students here, and um, it's true, it takes a long time, sometimes seven years. Uh, one of my shows took really longer even but you have these ideas and you you try to 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 do something uh, uh, of it and and you get discouraged and you don't find anyone to do it but uh, I find you know what really keeps you going is uh, an idea that wants to be uh, born an idea that wants to to get on stage, uh, and uh, it is this. I, I mean, sometimes uh, you really feel responsible for that idea, and you want to. Uh, uh, you have moments where you really want to give it up and do something else um, because it's the difficulties uh, get unsurmountable. You don't get the right producer, uh, or you have it 
uh, you have a production, and and uh, shortly before they really do it, you know, uh, they back up, and uh, it doesn't happen. But uh, it, you go on. Why do you go on as a writer or anyone who has such an idea and wants to do it? You go on because you feel responsible, because you know without you it would never be on stage. And it's such a shame. Uh, and somehow you don't do it because of yourself. You do it because you want to have this on stage. And uh, for me, it's less, you know, a story I read in a in a book or. But it's different for everyone. For me, it's always persons. It's always persons. People who to, who who tell me you have to tell my story on stage. And and you you don't want to let these people down. And if you have an idea you like this, you know vampires. You don't know vampires. I mean, the whole idea of the show is that we are surrounded by vampires. Uh, okay. I mean, you never been to the stock exchange? There are vampires all around. I mean, uh, 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 and uh, but but this is something. I mean, you 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 have everybody has his own uh, strange. Thoughts, you know, <laughs> but uh, but that doesn't matter, you know. Um, this there's no formula for this, but the power, the energy to finally bring it on stage, ca derives, in my opinion, from from someone that grabs you and you you feel responsible for it. With all the vampires around, who has the last word? You the mean choreographer, the director, you. Well, in the theater, nobody should have the last word, but there there are, you know, it's it's a teamwork. But there is, of course, it's like, uh, you know, as it, the, uh, you have st uh, several steps. Uh, you, you, uh, in, the, in the beginning, it's only the, uh, the, the writer, the, the librettist, uh, because in my uh, uh, kind of working, the composer uh, comes later. Uh, but then it's the composer and the librettist. Then, you know, all the other people that come. In the final stage, I think it should be only the director. You need to have someone steering the ship, and this should be the director. Do the directors agree? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, I mean, y you've done a lot of work with August Wilson. And, yeah. and I have to say that I've never seen an August Wilson play personally that half an hour being cut wouldn't have helped the evening in the theater. <laughs> I don't know if you agree. It's not if we're not here to talk about that. But if you had uh, that feeling... That we half hour short on King Hedley, actually. Okay, all right. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as a as a uh, playwright and, and, and a director, uh, what I try to find is that, that kind of beautiful middle ground where we can argue, we can throw chairs, we can do everything, but when it comes down to making the final decision, we both agree. Because, and I do that with, with, with my actors as well, because if they don't agree, I'm only going to get three quarters. Right, so you have to find the middle ground where you can... I, or I, I latch onto what I think it needs. You know, I'll run through all types of solutions and things like that. We'll sit down and talk, we'll work it out. But in the end, I need for everybody to be on the same page with the decision or else something's going to be missing. And in collaborating with August, who um, you're basically not going to, to make him go anywhere he doesn't want to go, you know, it's, it's even more um, important for us to be on the same page to understand why, whether I want a scene cut or a character enhanced or something, what's it mean to the story? To me, the only thing is, does it serve the story? 
if it serves the play. If it serves the story, if it serves the play, okay, then we're going to get in the room and we're going to hash it out until we get that done. So, um, at times I've done it with, yeah. let's say, writers who are younger, where I've just gone, well, boom, this mm -hmm. is what we really need to do here. But, you know, if the writer's a seasoned writer, or, you know, a writer of the stature of like August or Edward Albee or something like that, I mean, they know what they're doing. So you're going you to have to down and talk. You have the luxury in a play to really collaborate sort of head-to-head -head with only one person. The problem, yeah. not a problem, but it is a problem in a musical, is that what you have to do is you have to make the choreographer, the set designer, the orchestrator, the lyricist, the composer, the librettist, as well as the director, all happy. If you're, I mean, you're servicing many more people in a musical, yeah. so it's a much more difficult time to get everybody to, to, to but agree. But how does the choreographer come into that, Graciela? Well, um, the choreographer, I always feel the choreographer, good choreographer, is sort of a marriage with the director. It's a comp compromises sometimes, uh, discussions, uh, uh, but I think that a choreographer, a good one, is in a play from the very beginning. That's how I did it. My good work was always like that. When I could be there from the first, uh, um, you know, when I remember when Rupert brought it to, to, to Wilford uh, at the public theater and Wilford gave it to me and I sat with uh, Wilford and uh, we discussed a lot of stuff and by the way it was not clumsy. It might have been a little too long but it wasn't <laughs> clumsy. It was three and, and a half hours uh, and I volunteered <laughs> to cut a song. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was long. So I think that, um, I, you know, when, when I'm listening to everybody uh, as a director and a choreographer, it is no different than a family. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's a family. That's what a director tries to create, uh, to, to create people who are going to be living for three, six months, whatever it takes. Um, it's a short time, but it's in a very intense time. It's emotionally and, and psychologically very intense. Actors have to totally open themselves completely. Uh, uh, so, so what I think you try to do as a director is to create a sense of uh, protection of nurturing of security and a sort of a romping room at the very beginning so that everybody can expose themselves choreographers designers and all that and then it's really I believe it is finally up to the captain which who happens to be the director in a musical uh, is the one who has to take the responsibility of making the choice because otherwise it would be total anarchy so it doesn't, I don't think that a choreographer is any different than, than any of the other designers or the director. What about producers in the case of a musical? Well, it all depends on producers, you see. We don't have producer. too many. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, producers who really... A smart producer really realistically will agree to allow the director yes, to have correct. the responsibility. Mm -hmm. A good producer, and there are mm -hmm. not a lot of them left. No, no. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody complains about what we really need is more product. I think what we need desperately are more producers. I agree. Cut <laughs> yeah. from the bolt of cloth when we were, you know, when I was starting out in, in, in the industry. Um, the Herman Shumlins and, and the David Merricks. I mm -hmm. mean, as much as a tyrant as David was, he still really knew how to produce a show. Uh, now there are more people above the title of a show than there are probably in the company. Um, unfortunately, the, 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 the economy has changed. The economics of the theater have changed so dramatically 
that one single individual is no longer in a position to A, put up the money, or the SEC will not allow the $2,500 investments to function in the same way. And somebody like, oh, I don't know if I offend anybody on the panel, but somebody like a Sony will come into an event and say, well, there's software at the end of it all. So they'll become involved in the theater, not because they love the theater, but more because they know that they can get a CD out of, out of it or a videotape out of it at the, at the other end, where ultimately they'll end up being able to pay to make the money that they spend back to get it back that way. So, but these producers are not really involved in the creation of the show. Well, you know, other than their money, it used to be. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Well, they are, they are involved. They are in a, in very, in a, it's often in a very unhelpful way. Well. They're involved in the you know in the old <coughs> days. Again, I talk like I'm 100 years old, but sometimes I feel 100 years old <laughs> by virtue of the fact that when I started out, it was a producer who went to the writer and said, I would like to make a musical out of this movie that I've just optioned. So a David Merrick would buy the apartment and then go to Burt Bacharach and Hal David and say, do you want to come and work for me? So the producers were in effect being the, the instigators. They were producing the shows. I don't know in the last maybe 20 years of a producer, who, with, with the possible exception of Joe, who sometimes got ideas and did indeed go to, to, to writers to have them execute them. I don't know any producers who get ideas for shows. It's always the passion of a director, of a writer, of a composer, or a composer and lyricist who have to go out and find producers. Whereas How it used to be... I know one, and he's not even allowed back, Garth Dabrinsky. Yeah. That's one. He can't get in the country He either, can't get right. in the country. Yeah. So there you have it. I don't think there's a lesson here. But, but I, don't, I, I don't regret this, actually. You know, I don't think producers should uh, choose what you write. I don't think it's not a question of choosing. It's suggesting, would you well, asking you if you'd like to write. The only well, reason being, well, the assumption has to be that if a producer has gone to the trouble of optioning, a piece of material. He also, therefore, has the money with which to produce the play. Right, but then you're tempted to do it because he has a money, you know, and this is not good. That's not yeah, a good I, reason but to but write But I, I, I think it's, I, when you do get someone who comes to you, and so I have a show that's on Broadway right now uh, about the life of George Burns called Say Goodnight Gracie, and it's, I wrote it because someone came to me and said, I, I think that George Burns' life would be a wonderful thing to have on a Broadway stage. As, uh, could you do it as a one-man show? You would be the right person to write it. And at no point did he then turn to me as it was developing and say, why, why did you write this? I, I, in other words, I didn't have to convince him it was a good idea. And, and I, I thought, well, I think that's a fabulous idea. I, so we always were, uh, you know, uh, in league with each other. You know, and, and, and he had the same commitment to it emotionally as I did. I have a musical right now, Marty. And it started from one guy who had a dream of Marty being a musical and took money out of his pocket. And he came from theater. He was in Mer the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along. His name is Jim Weissenbach. And he took money out of his pocket, out of his checking account, and convinced the uh, Chayefsky estate that it would be good and convinced MGM that it would be good. And then he paid for the rights, and he paid for the renewal, and then he paid for a reading. And at no point did he ever look at me and say, you know, maybe this was a stupid idea. He knew that he had this passion for it. So these are not people who have produced before, 
but they have a passion for what they're doing. And, and they have, it is not just their money that's at risk. It's their dream that's at risk. And it's their idea that, that they want to wake up in the morning the next day and, and after it opens and say, I, I, was, I was right to have believed that. And that's the kind of thing you can't necessarily get from a, a large bank, whether it be a corporate entity or, you know. The other thing that has happened, which is really significant, is that if you're dealing with an original idea, your road to the production ultimately occurring is a lot different than if you have to go through the machinations of getting the rights from a motion picture company or a playwright, that a, a previous play or a book or a what, whatever, and it can go all the way down the line. There are not a great many original uh, musicals that are done. Mm. A lot of original plays that are done, but not a lot of original musicals that are yeah. done. Mm -hmm. They all seem to have generated from some source, from some place. Mostly from the movies. Well, fr yeah. recently from the movies, but mostly from, well, a lot of Dickens. I mean, yeah. Dickens has... I, did, I, I picked the most obscure Dickens you novel. Didn't that need, was good. But, when he didn't but, finish. But <laughs> you, you picked Dick, and I picked Harold Gray because all the Dickens was taken. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every time I turned around, if you look at Tale of Two Cities and, and Expectation, I mean, the whole, sure. the whole library of Dickens has been musicalized. I've been writing a, a musical over the course of the last five years based on the picture of Dorian Gray. There's, uh, I think, a zoning regulation that there must be uh, a Dorian Gray musical in every state of the union. I mean, there's about nine other versions. It's right. very, you know, when you work with a public domain property, uh, it's scary. That's scary. Luckily, no one's ever tried to do their Edwin Drood, but I suppose they could. But I, I also think part of what you're talking about, all of you, in terms of, of producing and ideas and, 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 and holding on to it, has to do with, I mean, in some ways nowadays it's called marketing because it, the idea is, you know, what is it that will be successful? What it will be good? And will good then be successful? And I, I'm wondering if, you know, there's the sort of the buzzword about marketing now isn't partly people trying to sell something that they may have been put together as a conglomeration and, and somebody says, okay, now how are we going to tell people this is this is good. Well, the, the fear that one always has, and, and I think we all have it, everybody sitting here, is that the marketing ultimately absorbs what you really started out to do. That it become that unless it's marketable, it can't get on. Okay. What do you mean by marketable? What do you mean by marketing? Well, I mean, uh, uh, unless you can make the deal with McDonald's to, you know, sell the sippy cup along with, you know, with two <laughs> tickets on Friday night. There are, I, I mean... Uh, I am astonished at how many um, avenues have opened up for marketing. Everything is being marketed. Um, are they are putting people in the seats? Yes and no, I think. Up I mean, to a point. Well, I mean, in the old days, it was a full-page ad in the New York Times, and, and, you know, and then somebody decided to advertise on television and right. then the radio, and now... It's a question of reach. It's a question of a full-page ad in the New York Times only, in effect, reaches the people who read the New York Times. It's why advertising changed from uh, window advertising in, in specific locations in and around New York to bus advertising, because the bus goes all over the city. So the bus advertising, the advertising for Chicago on the side of the bus reaches more people than any kind of static advertising that would, would, would necessarily you know, be in one place. 
Were, were you, I mean, I, I know that you directed um, Three Tall Women, and I wondered, were you involved in any of the notions of how an audience was going to be found for that play? Well, it's fascinating to hear this conversation because in the, um, outside the realm of large Broadway musicals and the kind of high-profile corporate packaging that you're talking about, when we get into off-Broadway and a small production in a, the promenade, 300-seat theater, um, you work with selling the play. That's a whole different level that's, it's, it's not nearly as pressured as what you're describing. And the producers that I worked with um, were collaborators, literally collaborators on making the artistic event of the play and the production sell itself. That was the goal. And I can only work with people who work that way. I, I couldn't work in a corporate kind of setting. I would get very angry. <laughs> and um, when I work with those producers, and you know we're still very good friends right now, uh, and with Edward and <coughs> possibly the next play he's doing next year that we're, we're collaborating on at the moment, um, there's a sense of that the event is the play uh, rather than anything else, and that it sells itself. Right. Uh, do those of you who have spanned working with producers in the old days and the, the corporate types, do you find that it makes you somehow more resistant and therefore perhaps dig in your heels more if, you're, if you have to answer to a, a phalanx of people who you don't think know what they're talking about? Uh, yes, I do. And that's the reason why I choose to work in a non-profit theater more often than in the commercial theater. Because I, 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 I feel that, just like you do, the Lincoln Center, Second Stage, where I'm working right now, um, they commission uh, something or they ask me, what would you like to do? And they open their arms and they nurture me. And that's the difference between aiming for the play to be successful than just to do the play. Now, of course, that is subscription audience and all that, but I do find that working in the theater not with everybody, but in the theater with com certain commercial producers who I actually do not respect. It's hard for my nerves, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Well. It's a lot of swallowing, trying to you know, keep everything calm. And right. uh, I have to tell you that the very first play I ever directed off-Broadway in 1969 was a play I generated myself through improvisation with recovering drug addicts called The Concept. It was mm -hmm. a major breakthrough at the time because mm -hmm. it was the first time real people had performed their own lives on stage, and then after that came Chorus Line and you know, performance art and everything else. There was a commercial producer who uh, took it from the La Mama Theater to Off-Broadway, where it ran for three years, and in the, he would come to rehearsals, and in the play, a very dramatic moment at the end, uh, they, they break down, they're screaming, they're crying, and they have to say, will you love me? And there was a white woman and a black man who would embrace. And the man came up to me and said, you can't do that. Change it. She has to embrace a white man. And I uttered an expletive <laughs> and said, get the hell out of the theater. He said, I'm pulling my money out. I said, great, pull your money out. And he walked out the door, uh, didn't change it. Of course, he never pulled his money out. And it went on to run for three years, played at the White House twice, toured the world. It was, and, but you, I, I wouldn't let him 
distort the event that I created. It was my play. That congratulations. That was a bold move. I mean, I think th those are the moments that you you hope right. you've made the yes. right. Yes. You mm -hmm. hope you've said the mm -hmm. right thing at the but right time. But at least you can. You, you, even even if he did pull his money out. Uh, you would have felt okay the next morning, yeah. and that's the most yeah. important thing. And I yeah. think that I think that a lot of a lot of the people who are putting the money in and pulling it out have absolutely no commitment, uh, or don't have the kind of intense commitment uh, to having to, to to putting putting the event on the stage. They're they're in it for the cash. They're, they are the vampires, maybe. Maybe there are yeah. vampires. Yeah. Yeah. But I have to say, you know, we have, ironical uh, as it may be, for vampires, we have wonderful producers. I mean, there are still producers around that understand, you know, that they should not interfere uh, with uh, the artistic work. And, uh, I mean, once they are, have agreed to a director, I mean, the director should have to say. And, and, and also, you know, it's not only the producers I work uh, with, with the vampires. I have the best experiences with Disney. I mean, maybe uh, I shouldn't say so, but uh, <laughs> they were very interested in the theater. They, they came up to the authors and, and, and said, you know, we don't think that's right. You discuss it. And sometimes, I mean, they have a point. I mean, uh, and that's part uh, of, the s of, of what happens but in the Absolutely. I, I'm not saying that they don't have a point. I mean, I, th of course that, I mean, uh, the, 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 the guy who sells orange juice could theoretically come up to you in the, right. in the back of the theater when you're standing there watching a scene and how to figure it out and, and say, well, if he exited stage left instead of stage right, it would be a bigger, bigger beat for you. And you have to admit, yes, you're absolutely right. Take mm -hmm. that and, 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 and use it. And I'm certain that there are producers around. And maybe the cycle, maybe the, it's turning a little bit uh, to the extent that, that more producers are willing to instigate properties and then walk away. What I'm finding right now is that because so much of the not-for-profit theater is dependent on subscriptions, that they're starting to play it a little bit safer. And if I have a Thanks. risky yeah. project, <laughs> for a while. There, are, there are several commercial producers who I know like to take risks. I will bring it to them before I will to a not-for-profit theater right now. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. fascinating how the dynamic is um, beginning to shift. There's a lot of not-for-profit theaters now who let their subscription audience lead the theater rather than they lead the right. audience. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With, um, lack of a better phrase, art. Uh, I've been having a similar uh, experience with Disney itself on this uh, musical on the Harlem Globetrotters. Now, this was brought to me after that after they've done two or three different versions that didn't work. And uh, Stuart Oaken, who was um, the head of that division, kind of said he he has this, this love for the game of basketball. He has this love for the story of the Harlem Globetrotters because they were basically like the Negro Leagues in baseball. No one knows it says, I want to put this on. I know you love basketball. I know you know this story. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a situation where I was not expecting, I mean, you're going to get more conglomerate than Disney. You know, I mean, I think we're all going to either work for Disney or Time Warner <laughs> before, you know, the next five years. You know, I'm on Disney now. Um, <laughs> but the thing that, 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 that uh, pleasantly surprised me was Stuart's passion for this project. Right. He's a you know, his, butts, right. his, his butt's on the line on this project. He's already, yeah. you know, 
the neuro, has lost a lot of money on it, but he's pushing and pushing, you know. And he's coming, you know, we got Susan Lloyd Parks doing the 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 book for it. And I'm going to write my website. Susan Lloyd Parks is going to write a book for a musical. He wants to do something special here. And our sessions of sitting down and hashing out the story with Susan, myself, a dramaturg, Oscar Eustace, and Stuart, and now Jeanine Tussori is, is brought into the mix, are pretty intense. You know, we'll tell each other, you know, throughout the session to go themselves mm-hmm. and whatnot. But we're coming and melding something that we're all becoming quite proud of. And I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to laugh at these guys because I say what I feel like saying. And I was told when I was being trained as a director, be able to walk away from anything. He says, if you can walk away from anything, you'll be able to walk away with your pride, you'll be able to walk away with your integrity, be able to walk away with your artistry. He says, so whenever you're to a point when that's what's on the line, walk. Which I've done a couple of times already this year with um, not conglomerate producers, but smaller producers. Because they didn't believe in the project. They believed, this is what you were saying, they believed in the money they think the project might make. But they didn't believe enough in the project to put money behind it so you could actually actualize that. Where I said, well, that's going to cost you. We can do this, but you're going to have to put some money up. You know, are you behind this project or are you not behind this project? You know, Stuart is definitely behind the project, whether it works or not. You know, I have a lot of respect for him for how gung ho he's been about it and given us pretty much everything we've needed, knowing that if this doesn't work, he might be in trouble. Where, you know, on a project I did earlier this year in Williamstown, it wasn't the same kind of thing because I didn't never believe that the producers were really behind it. But it, it, Not talking about Williams, talking about yeah. the independent producers. It, it's interesting that, that I think Disney, since we've, that's a subtext here that we've talked about a little bit, they, they did hire theater people. Yes. I mean, the Peter mm-hmm. Schneider and, and Tom Schumacher, who are the ones who said Julie mm-hmm. Taymor that's is right. the one that... Well, and if you think right. about the, the Lion King, the Lion King really, except for the score, bears very little resemblance to what the movie looks like, mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. like, perhaps. Mm-hmm. 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 And that's mm-hmm. a pretty bold move, and so that's, mm-hmm. you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have Matthew Bourne, I think, doing a little mermaid. Yeah. Other, in my limited experience, other movie companies aren't quite so enlightened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, that's you know, if they try to if they go f- try to find it from the inside, it doesn't seem to. Well, so Tom Schumacher comes from a theater background. Yeah, no, they're yeah. they're clearly theater people. But, uh, am I wrong? I think we talk too much about producers here because because yes, but the producers. I mean, on at uh, at the end of uh, of of the line and. And I, I would, uh, I, I want to come back, you know, to what I said in the beginning. I don't think that a writer should uh, sit down with uh, thinking of uh, who's going to produce this, or how do I intrigue a producer doing it, or which would be worse, you know, I do this only because a producer uh, approached me. Because I, I think that's, uh, that's not the right uh, approach for for writing uh, a, a musical or uh, or a play. I want to ask. Martin did a very interesting musical called The First about Jackie Robinson. And my sense of it, was it your idea? Mm-hmm. So that y- and then sort of, w- as with Annie, you, you had to interest, you had to find people who joined you in your, to, in your passion. I, I think with maybe one or two exceptions, a couple of times I worked for David Merrick uh, years, years ago, uh, most of the things that I've done, uh, for example, when, when, when we did Two by Two with Dick, Dick, in effect, was the producer, he was my collaborator, certainly as a, as, as a composer, uh, but he was also the producer. So a Richard Rodgers musical was going to get on. Uh, similarly, I remember Mama was Alex Cohen, who was the last of them, as far, yes. as, I, as, far yes. as I'm concerned. Individual producers um, who, who, who would um, 
could would be the producer and knew when to you know when 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 to walk walk away, but um, the first. The first, funnily enough, is having a whole resurgence. Um, it, it, it came at a, a very odd time. There were two major black musicals heading to Broadway at the same time. One of them was Dreamgirls, and the other was the first. And the one that obviously was the more um, interesting from an audience standpoint was, was Dreamgirls. Uh, and I'm not talking about quality I'm not or subject matter or anything, but the one that had the glitz and the one that looked like it could have the life beyond the life looked like it was Dreamgirls. Uh, so it's, it's interesting just what, what Michael was saying about a writer. If it starts with the writer, and there are writers here, um, you know, you need a producer at some point, but, but I think what you're saying is the, the, the passion should get lined up. But, you know, creative. the thing that we, I, I don't know if we've talked about it, but the, the way you get them on now is an entirely different way. I mean, you go through, the pro a project will go through many steps now. And that was one of the things in the old days that one did not do. If David Merrick were to produce a show, you'd book the Schubert Theater in Boston, you'd play it for five weeks, you'd then go to whatever in Philadelphia, and then you'd come into New York. Now you have the luxury, and it's a great luxury, of being able to do a small workshop production followed by possibly a bigger production at a regional theater, possibly going to a next step. So you, you incrementally spend your, the same amount of money probably and possibly even more, but at least you get an opportunity to see the, the work, to grow the work, and to be there. You have to make a commitment, however, to be there for the entire run of the, of the event, which does not necessarily follow linkage, you know, it doesn't link one to the but other. But Mark, don't you think that that was uh, also uh, the amount of time that we spent, like for instance, Promises, Promises, we rehearsed six weeks uh, in New York, then we worked like six weeks to Philadelphia, another six but weeks to Washington. you don't do that anymore. When was the last time we you had can't a do that. We can't do that. So <laughs> it is replaced. Oh, terrible. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the time, which is what we need, is replaced by these readings, these workshops, this out of time because we need the time. But That's time. the if, if, thing. If you, if you could have, the, if both of you, if you had the choice today, would you do the old? No, I would do what I do now. You, you do what? I do. Workshops. I like better the reading that allows to develop the material yes. more before you spend millions of dollars in sets that you might throw away. Yes. So I believe in this. I, I find it much more fulfilling and healthy also for it, the development of the piece. There was an interesting article recently about how, how in the old days you could throw the sets out because they dropped in or they wheeled in. That's and correct. nowadays yeah. you really yeah. can't do that can't if you do, do it out of town because the computer's all programmed <laughs> and you can't. And yeah. He yeah. says you can only afford one set. That's the other way to look at it. I also think that professionals don't need a full stage production to find out mm. what's wrong with the, with, the show, with the show. I mean, a it's reading good. is wonderful. A workshop is luxury, which is great. But actually, uh, you, you should know what you have, you know, when you have a workshop with some audience, you know, uh, eventually. That's all you need. I mm -hmm. don't think you need the full stage production. Well, for a musical, you need a workship. But yes, for a, you need for a, a play, a reading is enough. I don't well, believe for a musical, you don't you think you need I, a workshop? I think we should you have a workshop for a yeah. play too. Oh, you do workshop oh, for a play? Yes, yes. Yeah, workshop is great. That's oh. when the you know the actors start. Uh, no, to have a week or two yes, with actors yes, is for yes, a straight play, and then you see it. You know what the script needs after 
a week exactly. or two. Exactly, and yeah. the designers get to see it. So yeah. they are inspired before this. Be and they, collab exactly. they collaborate on the process yeah, with the writer and director. It's a very European way of doing it, too. I mean, as I remember, yeah. right? In, in Europe, you do that a lot. We do that a lot. I mean, the whole system is different uh, in Europe, of course, because we usually don't have private uh, uh, investors. Right. Uh, which, in a way, seems uh, a luxury mm -hmm. and much better. But uh, the people who invest the money, even if it's uh, the public or the government, mm -hmm. you know, they are not much uh, easier to handle than producers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the end, <laughs> you're not better off. <laughs> uh, but um, it's it's great to have to have uh, a, a reading and a workshop. And I think for for the musical, you <coughs> need definitely need it. Needed. But you need it with some audience, with some audience yes, in yes. a small theater, yeah. but not fully staged. Yeah. I mean, no sets, no big lighting things, mm -hmm. no, no costumes. But workshops are becoming more elaborate now. They're doing three you're or four days. Yes. You're absolutely right. What's starting to happen, which is dangerous, is that people are grading how well the workshop is done as opposed to how good the play is exactly. or how good the musical is. And they're looking at the production of the workshop as opposed yeah. to what is it, yeah. what's exactly. the text, yeah. what's the, what, is the, what is the score? There's another danger which happens is <coughs> that you cast a reading, and a lot of not-for-profit theaters do this, and they, you only rehearse for a day or two, mm -hmm. and if you miscast the reading, and I've known artistic yeah. directors uh -huh. to say, uh -huh. oh, I don't like that play, and the play was fabulous, but the wrong actor was right. in the reading, right. yeah. and the person can't distinguish from the text from the uh, actor that's doing mm -hmm. it, and that's a disaster as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. But it all goes back to, to somebody keeping the vision, keeping the eye on yeah. the vision, and you know, if, it, if it's yours, you have to do it. You well, I've actually done a couple of times now lately. I love to write straight thrillers. No one writes them anymore, and I love thrillers. I grew up enjoying Sleuth and Death Trap, and I actually will do plays now with community theaters, and that's the first play. That's my workshop. I'll actually find some really good, uh, you know, people right, who yeah. do it on the weekend, who if mm -hmm. their career had gone another direction. And I I've had, like, casting calls for some of these community theaters where I say I could be, you know, on 44th Street watching these people right now in terms of the quality that comes in. And that's my workshop. And I get to be just, I don't direct it myself. I let the person there do it. And, I mean, you get to hear what's working with the audience. It's, it's a, you have to be very brave because just as you can have that in a workshop, you can, You'll find you're doing a community theater and there's just no one competent who can play that role. So you have one role that's just going to be played terribly. But it's a, a fabulous thing. I had one uh, thriller and it's been done. I, I gave it to a, a, a little community theater in, in New Jersey. Then went to the Helen Hayes in Nyack. It's at the Cape Playhouse. Now it's going to go to L.A. And those have been my workshops. It's been a, a great experience to do. That's Thank great. Mm -hmm. It's time for us now to take a little pause okay. and uh, hear a few words from Isabel Stevenson. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on playwrights, directors, and choreographers, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You are probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, which is given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theatre, but we also have important grants programs providing aid to off and off-off Broadway theatres. We now offer six different scholarships for promising students to pursue studies in the theater arts. We have an expanded career guide program for beginning professionals. As a long-established charity, dating back from World War I and again in World War II, when we operate our famous stage door canteens, all of our programs 
are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater, to introduce young people and their families to theater, and the magic it unfolds. We take pride in the work we do and are grateful to our members and everyone whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theater Wing. We are proud to be a part of this exciting industry as we continue to provide services to the theater and to the community. Now, let's return to our panel on playwrights, directors, and choreographers, and our moderator, Ted Chapin. Ted. Thank you, Isabel. Since we have a fair number of students in the audience today, uh, and they've asked some, some questions about training, um, I thought that I, I would want to focus the conversation a little bit on training, what kind of training you guys recommend, um, and what kind of, and w perhaps where you think that training might be available. And I thought I'd ask you first, since Larry, you are the director of the theater program at Fordham University here in New York, yes? Uh, yeah, and uh, Fordham's located right near Lincoln Center, and uh, we have, it's mostly an actor training program, but there's a track for directors, playwrights, and designers. And um, it's, it's a very eclectic curriculum because for me, I was very fortunate to have um, been very close with a man named Jerzy Grotowski uh, in the last 10 years of his life. Many of you may not have heard of him, but I, I, uh, especially in Europe, uh, he is sort of known as the only other person since Stanislavski to actually develop an approach for actors. So in our curriculum, um, we begin with some of the more physical ideas that Grotowski had about acting and the visual imagistic ideas, and then we move into a sort of straight Stanislavski and then evolve into performance arts, self-created work, and then Shakespeare and text. So we call it um, the work with psychophysical actions, which is the psychological and the physical together, and then heightened speech to articulate the being very, very present in the moment for the actor. And it's a kind of training that um, We've had great success with our students are grabbed up by casting directors and agents when they graduate, and we get lots of calls from the graduate schools from NYU and Yale. Please, you know, have your students apply, uh, and it's e and it's eclectic. And we also have a summer program in Orvieto, Italy, where you go in depth in this kind of work, and it's attached to the Grotowski Work Center, which is in Pontedera, Italy. And so I teach there every summer in conjunction with um, Thomas Richards, who now runs the Grotowski Center. And we're opening um, a place in conjunction with RADA in London, and I'm about to start on something in Moscow. So we have an international base where we're going to collaborate with the Moscow Art Theater. I work in Russia a lot, and um, been there many, many times. A lot of my productions have gone there. And the sense of the educational model is both artistic and social in terms of the concept of being a citizen of the world and you as an artist can make a difference. Whether you're an actor, writer, director, designer, or stage manager, you have the power to actually empower a sense of an event in the community. And in the times we live in right now, I think it's more important than ever to have a sense of responsibility for who you are in the world. So your art matters, and you make a difference with your art. 
And for me, the totality of training, not just technique, but the totality of a vital approach in addition to a heightened sense of awareness of the community and the world today is what we try to communicate. And that's a point that, that's been made repeatedly on these panels and in the careers in the theater program that the, the, the wing has done, that, that rather than focus only specifically in one particular discipline, the more open you are to the world and, you know, the, the more important it is. Any, any teachers here? Any, have you taught Grazzi? Uh, no, I haven't. I mean, I still don't know anything. I'm still <laughs> learning. <laughs> but, uh, but I do agree with you so much. I mean, I started as a dancer, and I just went very slowly, you know, from dancer to assistant choreographer to choreographer to assistant director to director. And, and I think that, that, that my, not the talent, but the facility I have is because I started physically mm -hmm. connecting with drama in a physical way. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, I came to this country because of West Side Story, when mm -hmm. I saw West Side Story in Paris, because I thought that, oh my God, to, te to be able to tell the story in so many different idioms, that's what I want to do in my life. So I think that the, the, the more you expand, your, the, more, the more you learn, the more you read, uh, Read a lot. It's very important to, is it, you know, every single thing that you read every single day is a learning experience. But so you know what's really also important, and, and it's rarely, rarely said, and I kind of uh, am very passionate about history. And one of the things that I find young people today neglecting or believing that they don't have to bother about is what has come what their past is. Uh, the musical theater does have a heritage. There are laws of gravity that, that yeah. literally uh, will never change. And I think it's vital for anybody going into the musical theater to know who Cole Porter was. Granted, he passed away a uh, hundred years ago or however long ago it was. And, and, and this year, of course, there are all of these Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein celebrations, so it's a centennial experience. Uh, I don't think Cole Porter's necessarily going to have that kind of an experience, or the Gershwins are going to have that kind of an experience. But one of the most disillusioning things when I do an audition and somebody comes in and I say, who wrote that song? They don't know. <laughs> when an actor does not know who has been responsible for uh, the, the, the material that they're auditioning, it's very distressing to me. They don't know the shows. They don't know, uh, they don't know, th they, they don't know their history. It's really very, very simple. And I think it's mm -hmm. vital for people to remember, yeah. to yes. learn, and to examine mm -hmm. it. Yes. Because it's by virtue of what has previously occurred that indeed I believe you can make any sense out of what will ultimately happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. well, it's the same thing with an actor who comes in and has a monologue and doesn't know who the playwright That's is. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It's, exactly. it's absolutely And it's not necessarily saying that they have to duplicate the, the Kowalski moment. You don't mm -hmm. have to do mm -hmm. Stanley mm -hmm. Kowalski the way Marlon Brando did it. But you have to know that Marlon Brando did it for a reason and where it came from and why. One of the questions that came was, was whether the perceived death of the big British mega musical now will give a new generation opportunities for new musicals. Um, anybody feel one way or the other about that? Well, I don't think it's a death, to be perfect. I think, I think cyclically it happened. Uh, we were caught napping, if you want to call, call, call it that. 
but but Cameron, as a producer, simply saw how to how to how to enter into into uh, everything that the, that the British musical learned. They learned in effects from us to begin with. They then secretly, like what the ir Iraqi. Um, Programs in hidden palaces <laughs> all over, all over the Buckingham Palace, and, and we're developing musicals, and then all of a sudden, boom! They thrown these musicals on us, and for about 20 years, we were assaulted with, with British musicals. The problem that the British musical presented is a problem that we all face cyclically. I mean, I think Rupert, as a composer, w w would. Uh, would agree, is that when a young writer hears how sees, it's not hears necessarily, but <coughs> sees how successful an Andrew Lloyd Webber is, that he loses his approach to what his own vision of how to write is and begins to write like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now, prior to Andrew Lloyd Webber, when Sondheim was writing a show every two years, every single kid that I would work with in the ASCAP program started to write like Sondheim. Mm -hmm. And now they don't write like Sondheim anymore. Now they're writing like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Another thing has now happened. The producers has opened and has become a kind of a, 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 an approach to musicals. So things have gone, gone that way. What you can't do is lose your own voice. I mean, that's the most significant thing that, that young per, a young person uh, starting out, either as an actor, as a lyricist, as a director, you have your own specific voice, and you have to maintain it, no matter what the din outside is. Yeah, I, c I couldn't agree more. Uh, but of course, uh, I watched this uh, the success of Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, on, on Broadway, and uh, all all that follows. I, I also think it's not the death of that kind of musical, uh, the mega musical or whatever. Uh, there will always always be people uh, who who want to see um, big shows, spectacular shows, uh, opera-like shows. I mean, uh, but uh, on the other hand, I think s something uh, is very important to understand by by people here, especially by students here. Uh, Broadway today is not only an affair of New York. Or, or a place uh, or a theater for uh, the United States are made. It is an international marketplace. People come here from all countries of the world, and they see the musical theater. And in a way, this is the standard of what happens. But on the other uh, side, it cannot uh, be uh, without consequence for the style of the Broadway musical, because a lot of people coming to Broadway are not in the tradition of the typical Broadway audiences. Uh, what they want is they want to see on, uh, on the stage a show with their kind of music. Uh, they want to be moved by the story. They want to be moved by the music. And I think part of the success of, the, uh, of Andrew Lloyd Webber was that he uh, had a new approach. He used basically uh, his uh, musical uh, 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 voice um, he knew, which was basically a rock music. Uh, 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 I mean, I still think that uh, 
the revolutionary uh, a piece he wrote was Jesus Christ Superstar, and everything else followed from that. But I think that was a very important step because all of a sudden, so uh, uh, rock music, uh, the music we all grew up grew up with, uh, was uh, used for a stage show, and uh, and also you know the shows I write uh, are not Broadway shows. These are uh, shows that just try to tell a story with music, and there are so many ways to do this, and mm -hmm. it may come as a relief, you know, for, for students who are uh, really intimidated by the masters uh, uh, like uh, Rogers and Hammerstein and, and all the other big ones. Uh, and they say, how could I ever do it like this? And this is why they try to, uh, to be like them. But the tradition of the musical theater really goes back to the Greeks. And it's an old idea. Even Shakespeare was always done with music. I mean, it's an old idea to, uh, to combine words and music for the stage. And so everything is legitimate in a way. Everything can be done. And I think what we really need is new approaches. Uh, and, and without this, uh, you know, looking up to the big masters, <laughs> am I good enough for you? No, <laughs> just do something and, and do it for a small audience uh, to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. uh, there will yeah. always be producers who mm -hmm. say, OK, we can make a big show out of it. Mm -hmm. And then you have the spectacular one again. What's <laughs> really interesting is I, I was telling Graziel before the panel, I still remember her choreography in Pirates of Penzance as <laughs> and long time ago. And it's yeah. vivid in my mind because of the dynamic kind of energy. And what was happening in New York City at that time was a huge proliferation of experimental theater, groups like the Living Theater, the mm -hmm. Open Theater, mm -hmm. downtown. Downtown was extremely exciting. Uptown was extremely exciting because of the kind of work that mm -hmm. you were and, and other people were doing. And each thing feeds the other. And when you have a fertile climate for exciting theater, it doesn't matter whether it's in a tiny coffee shop or on a Broadway stage. You've got a sense of the theater is being nurtured and growing. And that was a time yes. where that was very exciting in New York. It was the golden years. Mm -hmm. um, I was so fortunate to be working with at the Judson Church and with Judson dancers. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you would see from that work trickles into Broadway productions from the kind of innovative techniques that were being developed. And it was a, the sense of a total community feeding the other. And that climate, I think, with you young people, is something that you can also nurture because each generation has to nurture its own sense of fertility that the theater can move forward from. But I, I also w wanted to say that in, in reference to what you were saying in terms of your own voice, when Grazzi did uh, Chronicle of, of Death Foretold, I remember having seen your work, wonderful work, for years, and suddenly I thought, I think we're seeing more of Grazzi here yes. than we've ever seen. Yes, yes. And it, you know, it just it, it felt like suddenly there was you would open something up, and you you were given the ability, and, and you were given the opportunity, the opportunity. Yes. to do something. And, and that was Lincoln Center, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I start it started actually uh, years before Lincoln Center. Actually, I was doing there was a little organization called Intari, Hispanic Organization mm -hmm. on 42nd Street. And I was giving some kind of a mm, class or something, and the artistic director said to me, would you like to do, I, I was a choreographer up to then, I think it was just after yeah, Drew, right I now. think. 
and uh, I had only choreographed. And, uh, and Max Ferrer said to me, would you like to develop something of your own? I went, oh my God. <coughs> you know, so all of a sudden the whole world is looking at you. What am I going to do? I don't know where to start. And, uh, and I developed something, and I went back to my roots. I went to the Latin roots, and the same thing happened with Chronicle of a Death Foretold. And I did what I wanted to do. I had co-adapted it and choreographed it and directed it and did my own thing. And I think that that's when I started finding much more inside of me that I had up to then, perhaps because I only had used or being asked to use 50% of myself up to then, and all of a sudden somebody gave me the opportunity of saying, go ahead, you can do it, fly. And, uh, and you know, I'm, there's something about me that I, I just, I, I, all my life I feel like um, somebody knocks at my door and I open and somebody says, do you want to come out and play? And I go, yeah! <laughs> I, I mean, I just, you know, uh, I, and I just went with it. But on the other hand, I had producers who nurtured me, mm -hmm. who said, go girl, you can do it. And it wasn't about money, because it was not too much money. And Chronicle was exactly the same thing. I was, you know, resident director of Lincoln Center. I go to, to, to Andre once in a while and say, well, I have this crazy idea, but okay, go ahead. Do you want a reading? Do you want what do you need? That doesn't happen too often, you know that. <laughs> one, one of the questions was whether you felt that, um, as a woman, there, you were, there were more roadblocks in your way than there would have been. No, never, never. I think that uh, perhaps in the commercial theater, I would say, I think there was a time where there was sort of like a men's club. And women were mostly known as choreographers. They were, you know, brilliant. Agnes de Mille, the, you know. Was, but uh, I, I felt that there were not too many directors. I mean, there, there were some directors in the past, but it, it didn't. But I think that is, it has changed now. And, uh, and I, did, I was never affected by it. I don't think, I never think in the theater, when I am working in the theater, I never feel that, oh, yeah, she's the Latin crazy woman. <laughs> uh, she's just one collaborator, you know? I, I never felt that. Maybe other people have, but I haven't. No, not at all. Rupert, teaching? Have you taught? No, no. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm barely a student. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, my background was uh, I went to Manhattan School of Music. That's where I studied music. Uh, as far as writing goes, um, I've, I've learned primarily by what, what Grazia was saying, uh, just taking in every play. I never saw any play, and I mean any play, that didn't teach me something, or in one or two cases saying, well, I should never ever do that. Or, but, yeah. but I mean, I've, I've learned, and, and I've, I've tried to be an equal opportunity enjoyer. You know, Duke Ellington said there's two kinds of music, good and bad. I, I love uh, um, Ibsen, and I love the worst farces that you'll see in, in, in England, or Christmas pantomime. Uh, which is a, a very unique British tradition, is really uh, responsible for a lot of Drood. Yeah. It's based a lot on Christmas Panto, Gilbert Sullivan. We, our London production of Drood opened at the Savoy, where all their works did. Um, but, uh, no, the only thing that I, uh, I learned from my collaborators, you know, like right now I'm writing with Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, and I remember the day I went to the library and took out the first record that the library had that you could take out, it was Bye Bye Birdie. The first album I ever bought was Golden Boy. So I learned so much from them and from Grazzi, from Wilfred Leach, from the directors I've worked with, Marshall Mason, Mark Brokaw, John Tillinger. So I had been in show business and had been writing. I'd done 10 albums, written lyrics for most of the wonderful pop singers of the 70s, and uh, suddenly found that my first 
chance, my first opportunity to write for theater, not that I hadn't wanted to, um, ended up in a, uh, a Broadway musical that won the Tony Awards. So um, it's kind of strange to start that way. And uh, I've had to kind of learn very fast on the job, as it were, with every play that I've done. So training never stops. Uh, no, uh, it, it's just barely beginning. Yeah. Martin, you were involved with the, the early years of the NYU program on teaching musical theater. You yeah. it, is that a possible thing to teach? Uh, to an extent it is. Uh, but basically, one of the things that, that, that is inherent in, in, in all of what I think we're talking about is a kind of ability that you're somehow born with. You really can do it or you can't do it. I don't know that you can learn it. Uh, you could possibly learn the technique of it, but the the way to, to the, the, the way to make theater happen is to want to make theater happen. And um, for example, I've had I've had 25 years now of teaching only little girls. I mean, I I teach little seven, eight, nine, and ten and eleven year old little girls how to how to act on the stage. Where do you teach it? When I do a production of Annie. I mean, oh, I <laughs> 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 uh, that's really learning on the job. But it is, but it, is, it, is <laughs> it is on the job training to the extent that these children have had no experience. Well, maybe mm -hmm. they've done some tap classes. Uh, but they've certainly never learned how to fill their own space on the stage and how to relate to adults and how to memorize in the same way that children have to memorize and how to how to maintain performances uh, so it is a it is you know a teaching experience but I think all directors in some way or another do teach uh, they teach intention of possibly what the playwright <laughs> had in mind when indeed um, uh, a, a play is done or or a music a musical is done uh, but you can you can write music or you and I agree totally. <laughs> there's good music or there's bad music. It, there are two, and and th there are good lyrics and there are bad lyrics. And you can really find out. And I think one finds out early whether or not they're they're going to be able to 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 accomplish what they what they what they want to do. So am, am I right in saying that advice to, to students, if you want to be, for example, a playwright, is to write? Is to write. Yeah. The advice uh, is uh, is it's all no. on the job training, even if it doesn't necessarily get produced. But there's no better way to write than to write. And there's no better way to write lyrics than to try to write lyrics. And if you don't have a collaborator, write, write lyrics to some enchanted evening. But where uh, do you use get that melody. Where do you get people to hear you? Uh, eventually, there will be programs here in New York that, and there aren't that many right now, that do listen to new writers as they come along. The NYU program lasted too briefly and then became embroiled in a whole mess of politics and didn't, didn't unfortunately go the direction that, that a lot of the teachers, if you want to call us that, at that time wanted it to go and it just fell apart. Mm. I disagree, by the way. You know, I think uh, you have to learn the craft as a playwright and it's like a, an architect building a ship or a bridge. <coughs> I mean, if he doesn't know uh, uh, about uh, uh, the problems, uh, technical problems, you know, he cannot build a ship. I mean, uh, I think it's to, r to, to write a good musical uh, or play, 
uh, is as complicated as writing, uh, as building a ship or uh, constructing uh, uh, a high-rise. And I really think the art, the craft, and this is really something you have here. You can learn it. Uh, in Europe, we don't have these kind of courses, and I really think uh, you have to learn the craft to do this. So what you're disagreeing with is that I'm it can't be taught? No, I'm, I, I think it's wrong to, st to, to learn writing by writing. You, have, you should write a lot. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> you also have to, you first you have to know the theory, uh, to know how uh, the dramaturgy uh, uh, has to be built up, how a good play has to be constructed to work. And you have to learn this. I mean, this is something you can learn. Like uh, when you're a painter, you have to learn how to prepare uh, uh, um, the canvas, uh, or you know, have to know something about perspective. All these you can learn. You're not, you'll, you will not be a Picasso I'm, I'm after that, no, but you but can unless, learn it. You unless, know. You're, unless it is your intention not to utilize perspective in the painting that you're painting. Yeah, but you have to know about it, even yeah. if you don't I utilize that's it. That's right. I agree with you. To, to an extent, you, you have to know about it, but you don't have to, I don't think you necessarily have to learn it. Well, I, I think I it's don't a wrong know, message. I, I really I, think it's yeah. a wrong message for, the, for these kids. They should well, learn um, uh, I teach uh, kids from, from time to time that are high school age because I like to get to them before they get to college and get mm -hmm. ruined. But the main thing that I tell them, I say, I say keep three things to the forefront, whether you're an actor, whether you're a director, whether you're a writer, is passion. You have to have a passion for what you're doing here. You know, the passion is its own reward. Whether a producer sees it, whether it does not matter. You write because you have to write what you are writing. The play you need to write, you have to write it. There's no other reason to write it. But I have to get this out of me and put it down on paper. Knowledge. You know, I, I, I agree and disagree with, uh, with, with, with the talk about, about craft because craft, structure, and what the well-made play is changes over, over history. Um, Ibsen was not exactly greatly loved in the beginning. I have this book at home that's all these bad reviews of all these great plays. You know, King Lear, easily forgettable. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, Chekhov, boring. I don't want to stop yeah. you, but I, on that passionate note, I think we have to wrap up. <laughs> think of the passion. Well, yeah. you want to say something final? I don't want to leave King Lear as a bad play there. <laughs> uh, no, I just say passion, knowledge. You have to know what's come before you so you can see what's possible to do. And um, the last one is imagination. If you do not have an imagination, it doesn't matter how much craft you have. That's a good place to start. And a little madness. <laughs> and a little <laughs> madness. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you very much. We are coming from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These are the Working in the Theater Seminars of the American Theater Wing. Thank you very much. <laughs>